We'll hear argument today in Case 07214, Allison Engine Company versus United States, XRL Sanders and Thacker. Mr. Olson. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court. The False Claims Act addresses and redresses fraud on the government, not on every recipient of government funds. The liability-imposing provisions of the False Claims Act refer ten times in a single sentence to a submission to the government, getting a claim paid or approved by the government, or defrauding the government. Liability is to the government, and it's based upon the amount of damages that the government sustains. Twenty years ago, construing an even broader statute, this Court unanimously determined that defrauding the government in any manner for any purpose does not include defrauding recipients of Federal funds. That's the Tanner case. The United States made the same arguments in the Tanner case in 1987 that is making today in connection with the False Claims Act, and this Court unanimously decided that case that defrauding the government did not include defrauding grantees or recipients of Federal funds. There is no evidence in this case that false or fraudulent claims were submitted to the United States. Indeed, we don't know from the record what was submitted to the United States, when it was submitted to the United States, what it contained. What about the certificates of conformance with specifications? I believe they were the Navy's specifications, and Allison submitted to someone those certificates of conformance. The District Court very carefully analyzed that evidence, as well as all the other evidence in the case, Justice Ginsburg, and found that an inference could not be drawn with respect to what had happened or when it happened. Because there is a time lag, drawing an inference from certificates of performance when you don't know when those certificates were made, when they were submitted to the government, what they said. Could the government have asked — could the Navy have asked for them? The Navy — you mean in the — in connection with the litigation or in connection — No, in connection. The Navy — these engines are being supplied for Navy destroyers, and the Navy obviously has an interest in making sure that the — they measure up to the specifications. So my question is whether in the procedure for dealing with subcontractors, there is any kind of audit where the Navy can say, we want to see the certificates of conformance for those engines or other documents relating to them. The answer to your question, as I understand it, Justice Ginsburg, is yes. The Navy had the right to test the equipment, look at the — look at the specifications, examine the specifications, ask for corrections if they were unsatisfied, to test the products. The Navy had the right to do all of those things. And one — fundamental to this case is we don't know whether they did, whether they were satisfied with the generators as ultimately delivered to them, whether there were corrections if there were deficiencies or — or deviations from the specifications when they were first submitted to the shipyards, whether those were corrected, whether those deviations were immaterial. 
Does the Navy have the right to uh, audit the, the subcontractor's books? As I, it's my understanding. I'm not 100 percent sure of that, Justice Kennedy, but it's my understanding that the government did have the right to follow the process all the way through. There is no evidence that they did so. Suppose they audit the subcontractor's books uh, and they don't discover a fraud uh, and, and leave. Uh, would there be liability then, under your view? Well, I think it would depend upon what was in the books and whether there was — The books show uh, that X dollars were spent for — uh, for certain parts, and that was far too much. That was an inflated figure. It fools the government. The government then pays the subcontractor, the sub, uh, pays the contractor, the contractor pays the subcontractor. It, it, that, might, that might be, uh, Justice Kennedy, uh, it, regarding the terms of the statute, whether you might interpret that as providing under A2, uh, providing a record or document to the government with the intention that the government pay or approve a claim. I think you'd have to examine the evidence in that context. What we don't have here, we don't know what was submitted to the government. What the um, lawyers representing the um, claimants in this case, uh, and this is from page 5A of the uh, appendix to the cert petition, footnote 3, we have, this is what the, uh, when they were asked about this issue, we haven't shown you the shipyard's invoices to the United States, and we're not going to show you those because they are totally irrelevant under the False Claims Act. Now, that could not be more wrong, it seems to us. You can't determine if there's, if there's going to be a fraud, a claim of fraud against the United States, you know, have to know what the United States received to see whether it's fraudulent, to see whether any deviation from the facts were material, whether the deviation from the specifications were maybe the product was better, maybe it deviated in an insubstantial way or an immaterial way, maybe the government had an opportunity to fix it. We don't know whether there was reliance by the government. We don't know whether there was a loss by the government. And we don't know if there was a loss by the government, the quantification for the loss. I might be just missing something here. But tell me what I'm missing. What about the definition of claim? It says a claim includes a request under a contract for money or property, and the request is made to the contractor if the United States provides any, any of the money. Well, is there, is there an issue here as to whether some of the money provided are you saying there was no money provided by the United States, or maybe there was no money? No, the, the way the record, the record is a, is a little confusing with respect to that, Justice Breyer, but I think that one of the witnesses, I don't know how he knew, yeah. but one of the witnesses said, yes, the money that we received was money that came from the United States. Well, so why doesn't that end it? I mean, I, why doesn't, why, how do you win then? given the language I just read. Well, that's the definition of the word claim. claim. And there has to be a claim. There has to be a claim, but then section, you're reading section, subsection C. Right. Subsection A provides the standard for liability. So you can have a claim, but you're not liable for a false claim unless it's submitted to the government, unless it's knowingly made to get a fraudulent claim paid or approved well, by the Well, you say claim. A, but we're talking about A, too, in conjunction yes. with C. Yes, I, I, I'm looking at oh, the statute. But, but you were quoting from A1. No, I quoted from both A1 and A2. A2. I, I know that, but it doesn't A2 stand by itself, especially as, as, as C is written? 
C and two, C and A two make uh, make grammatical sense without any presentation to the government. Well, it reads out the words by the government uh, from that section, which is what the statute looked like until it was specifically well, the amended. The words by the government are in A two. Pardon me. The words by the government are in A two. They are in A two, but the way Justice the way Justice Kennedy was reading it, I respectfully submit, would read out those by the government. What A two saying that in addition to being a claim, that's not enough for liability. It has to be a claim that's presented to the government. It's presented to the government, and all that C does is tell you what what a claim is. So that even if it's not a claim against the government, but just a claim against a subcontractor. That still can be the basis for liability so long as it's presented to the government. It's presented to the government or under A-2, knowingly made to get — A-2 says it has to be paid or approved by the government. It has to be made or used to get a claim paid or approved. In other words, it has to be something that's created, then given to the government, so in order to get a claim paid or approved — by the government, what I'm yeah, but you it, say given to the government doesn't say given to the government. It says paid or approved by the government. Well, I think a reasonable reading of the statute is, and and this is essentially what this court unanimously decided 20 years ago in the Tanner case that these these cases about defrauding the government must involve something that causes the government to suffer a loss, some something that that, that impacts the government. Even the even the government today is making the same statement that there has to be a loss. What I'm saying with res- it's important, Justice Kennedy, that that if, if you are going to want to get something paid or approved by the government, you have to do something that gets it to the government in some fashion. And reading A-1 and A-2 and A-3 and the Tanner decision and the history of this statute from 1863 all suggests very strongly, I submit, the plain language of the statute is that it involves fraud against the government. Now, you may submit something to a prime — you may be a subcontractor and submit something to the um, to the prime contractor. And this very — this case is a very good example of it. And this case is very much like the Tanner case. What did the prime ca- contractor do, do with it? If it was false or deficient or out of specifications, the prime contractor had a right to say, wait a minute, tighten those bolts up a little bit more, or we're going to deduct it. Uh, a little price from that. We're going to tell the government that there's a deviation in the But if it's disguised, how would the how would the prime contractor know? Well, that's just the point, Justice Ginsburg. We don't know one way or the other unless the evidence is submitted. We don't know what the government received, so we don't know whether the government was deceived. So if I submit that it might well be in this case, we don't know how much time elapsed between the Submission by, of the invoices and, or, or the other materials from the subcontractor to the prime, prime contractor. What happened then between then and when the ships were delivered to the Navy? Lots of things could have happened. We don't know. Well, there wasn't any trial, was there? There was a trial. There was? And there was a motion uh, at the close of the evidence um, of the plaintiff's case. And that's at that point that counsel said, we are not going to show you the invoices to the United States. Well, we're how not- could they? They would have, at a minimum, uh, even if your theory is not correct, they would have to prove loss to the government. Otherwise, they would have no claim. That's, that's correct, Justice Ginsburg, and that's my point. If you can't, if you don't know what went to the government, you don't know whether a claim or a document 
or a statement, or, to use the words of the statute, went to the government. You don't know whether what the government got was false. That, you don't know whether they — Does the other side concede that point, that you have to prove loss to the government? I don't think they do, do they? I'm not sure. Just, I think yeah. — um, I don't, I, I don't the, think they the, the, What the statute says — The government certainly has that in its brief. What the, what the statute says is that it is liability to the government for the damage the government sustains. Now, it may well be there's penalties even if there isn't damage to the government. I would concede that. You could say that the misuse of government funds, which are in the hands of, of, of contractors, harms the government even though it doesn't come out of the government's pocket, because those funds were given for a particular purpose, and if that purpose is frustrated, the government is harmed. You, that would work without saying that the government has lost any money. Well, you could say that, but you don't know whether the government got what it wanted. <laughs> you don't but, know whether the government — if something deviates from specifications in a contract, it might deviate you know, on the plus side of something. It might deviate in an immaterial way. The contractor, the prime shipyards here, and the government had the right to correct any deficiency. Okay. So suppose the government gives money for, for building schools, okay, to, to a state, and a fraudulent claim is submitted as, uh, in connection with the construction of the school. The government has been cheated in that the money it gave for a school is not going to the school. Some of it is going into the hands of the fraudulent contractor. Well, what you've, what you've done with your question, Justice Scalia, is left out the link. What happened? What the government may have made, given money to the schools. Subcontractors might have submitted something false. The prime contractor might have discovered it, said, correct this or okay, I understand this. that, but that's a different point. No, I mean, it I'm isn't. I'm talking now about the point of whether the government itself has to suffer any harm other than the fact that the money it gave was not used for the purpose for which it gave it. That alone, it seems to me, could be harm. Well, it, it, it might under some circumstances be harm. It might not under other circumstances be harm. It might be misleading in an immaterial way. It might, there might have been no reliance by the government. The might have, government might have said the, subcon, the, govern, the, con, the contract between the prime contractor and the subcontractor might have different requirements than what the government wants. Well, None but, of but those things Mr. Olson, it seems to me you're fighting the hypothetical. Let's say they built a lousy school subspect. The roof has fallen in, the plumbing leaks. It's a fraud. But they've given the money to the, the feds have given the money to the states, and the states have let this slip by. Justice Scalia's point was the federal government has been injured. The federal government may have been injured. The question is, what does this statute redress? There are other statutes. There's a major fraud provision of the of the of Title 18 that has major penalties for fraud by sub uh, by subcontractors against contractors in connection with um, public projects, just as the one, like the ones you're describing. But if this court's Tanner decision is correct, and it was only 20 years ago, it was unanimous. It, de it defined the term defrauding the government, and it said defrauding the government means defrauding the government, not filing a false claim. But that's why the definition — it seems to me at the moment, that's why I'd like your view, that the language is perfectly ambiguous. The, the, the language of knowingly makes a false statement to get a false claim paid. Now, the false claim is the claim that they made to the contractor, because that's the definition. 
And you're saying, well, they made this statement to get a false claim paid by the government. Now, you could read those words, paid by the government, to say, and there has to be a causal connection, which is what you're saying, that you have to make the false statement, make the claim, and that led the government to pay. But you could also say it's paid by the government when the money to pay it comes out of government funds, because it was paid by the government, even though the government gave the money to build the school a 100 years ago, but it's there in the bank account, and then the contractor took the money from the bank account that the government had put in and paid it. I in such a case, linguistically, you can say it's paid by the government. It has to be a false claim paid yeah, by yeah, the government. Yeah, yeah, it was a false claim. But what, what, Justice Breyer, what is missing from your hypothetical is what went to the government. Suppose the prime contractor decided that the paint was off-white instead of white, and that was satisfactory. Suppose the subcontractor said to the government, There's, this is a major project. This is a billion-dollar project. There are all these little things that, that are out of specifications and could be called false or fraudulent or misleading. We're going to disclose all of these things to the government. The government has a f- complete opportunity to test them, look at them, decide whether it's satisfied. Then the government isn't deceived. Well, it doesn't say that. It says it was a false claim, which it was. It's false, and it's a claim to the general. And was it paid by the government? Yes, it was paid by the government, even though everything you said is true, because the money to pay it came from government funds. So that's why I'm having a problem. I can read those words, paid by the government, either way. Well, you, you, I think you were taking the words and isolating them, it is knowingly making a false record or a false statement to get a false claim paid. If the government didn't pay a false claim, then A2 doesn't provide for liability. Well, that's not strictly correct. I mean, it's paid or approved. Yes, and I, if I should have said yeah, but if the, it's, Which means there's a, there's a third way, uh, and, and the third way of reading it is, if the sub makes the false statement, to the general contractor in order ultimately to get a false claim, i.e., the ultimate contractor's claim for conforming work uh, approved or this particular claim approved by the government when the government makes the ultimate decision to pay the general contractor, that would be covered by two. Well, if I, I, I should have said the word approved because I, I was shortening it up, but it does say paid or approved. But what has to be done is that the government has to — what has to be submitted is something to cause the government to pay or to approve a false claim to the government. But, but that can simply be done uh, by, the, by the false claim to the general contractor who either accepts it as true or, for that matter, knowingly understands that it is false and ultimately submits the same claim, i.e., as an element of its ultimate bill for the, for the whole project. Well, what I might say, in addition to what I have said, Justice Souter, is that there is no stopping point for that theory. The government says as long as the project involved federal money, as long as the project used federal funds, as long as the project might endanger the federal fisc, as long as the program is financed in part by federal money, 
there would be liability under this statute, given the tens of thousands of government contracts, government funds, government financing of states, localities, universities, and so forth, there is no limiting point. And but I th with, with respect, I think there is a limiting point. You're, you're certainly right when you talk about the, the, the thousands of contracts that the government ultimately makes or finances uh, for, the, for the benefit of, 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 of lower units of government. But it does not follow from the government's theory that if the United States makes grants to a subunit of government, not for the purpose of a given contract or a given project, it simply makes grants, revenue-sharing sorts of things. It doesn't follow from the government's position that when one of those subunits of government then makes a contract spending part of that money, that it's covered by this statute. This statute would cover the myriad of grants made for particular contracts. It would not cover every uh, subset of funds uh, in a lower government unit, some of which had been contributed by the national I government. Don't, I don't think, with respect, that that's a fair reading of what the government said, either in the Tanner case, I think making essentially the same arguments which were rejected unanimously by this Court, um, or what it says in its brief to the Court today. Well, perhaps would we should ask the government to explain what its position is, but uh, one of the points that has been raised in opposition to your argument is that your interpretation would cut out claims that today are regarded as properly presented under the False Claims Act, and the one that was featured was false claims for Medicare or Medicaid reimbursement, because those are presented not to the government, but to an intermediary. In, in, with respect to that, the government filed a brief in a case called um, Atkins versus McIntyre in the 11th Circuit. And I have the brief here. It's not part of the material that is before you, in which the government said that even if the district um, D.C. Circuit decision that's involved in this case, the Totten case, was correctly decided, uh, those, those Medicare, Medicaid cases would be substantially covered under the statute, even under that construction, because the provider's claim is passed on by the insurer to the Medicare agency or entity. Now, I don't know, Justice Ginsburg, the facts of that case uh, or the facts of all of those circumstances, but the fact is that if you take this statute as it was enacted in 1863, all of this used to be a part of one section that talked in the first case, first instance, one sentence, which discussed in the first instance a presentation of a claim to the government and which was the liability to be imposed upon the claimant. The second part of the sentence said was intended to cover the people aiding the fraud, those people that provided with records or statements in order to get the payment made. And then the third provision was the conspiracy provision. Those were broken out into the subsections you see today in 1982. Congress specifically said, we are simply codifying the statute. We're not changing the statute. We are making no substantive changes in the statute. Um, if you read that provision in the context of the Marcus versus Hess case, which was in the early 40s, in which the government, in which the court specifically said there's liability for an intermediary causing a federal government to pay the claim, but in that case the invoices were passed on and the, and the 
government entity, in that case, the Public Works Administration, had the opportunity to review and approve so the, the invoices. So the whole difference, the whole difference, then, is if the, the invoices are passed on as opposed to the government having the right, if it so chooses, to inspect the books and records. I think I, I, I may not have heard your question in the the, the the difference is if the government gets the invoices from the contractor, then there's a claim under the False Claims Act. But if instead the subcontractor is required to make its books and records available on request to the government, that's not enough. Well, I, I, I think we, I, it's certainly not this case, because the, the, although the government had an opportunity to do these things, we don't know what happened. But it may, I thought you said it, that it is this case that the government had the right if, to if audit I, the If I, the problem is that, as this, as this Court said in the, unanimously in the Tanner case, given and forgive me for doing this, but it's important. Given the immense variety of ways the federal government provides federal financial assistance, always accompanied by some restrictions or conditions on its use, the inability of the substantial supervision language, which the government was advancing then, which is sort of advancing now, does not provide any test for any real but, guidance. But the Tanner case didn't uh, confront the statute, which has the definition of claims that Justice Breyer's is putting aside to you. Yes. C. Uh, this statute that we're looking at, in effect, defines what a fraud against the government is. Yes, but it, but but when it was when it was um, when it added that section, it specifically added in the words by the government, which those words were added after the legislative history that the, both the respondents and the government cites. And it did not change, Justice Kennedy, the definition of liability. It simply defined claim. Am, if am, the I, court am I correct in this that without the claim definition, the statute would not cover a fraudulent submission by the subcontractor to the contractor, which is known to be passed on? To the government ultimately. No, I think without that definition, the claim would be made against the contractor, not against I the government, I, I, and I, therefore wouldn't be a claim. I think under both the if the if the claim by the subcontractor to the contractor is intended to be passed on, that, that is the contractor is an intermediary. Then under Marcus versus Hess, which is the situation there, there could be liability. I'd like, if I could, uh, Mr. Chief Justice, to reserve the balance of my time. Thank you, Mr. Olson. <laughs> Mr. Stewart. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please the Court, I'd like to begin with the same point that Mr. Olson began with, namely, does the False Claims Act, is the False Claims Act directed solely at schemes to defraud the government, or does it encompass schemes to defraud people who receive federal money? And we're in agreement with petitioners that the False Claims Act 
is directed at schemes to defraud the Federal Government. Our theory in this case is not that the subcontractors are potentially liable because they may have attempted to defraud the prime contractors. Our theory is that the subcontractors are potentially liable because they are alleged to have used false representations made to the prime contractors, but with the ultimate purpose of defrauding the United States. And I think if you imagine what would have happened if the allegations in this case are true, and if the fraudulent scheme had been carried to completion, it's very clear that the government, rather than the prime contractors, would have been the injured party. Mr. Stewart, I don't understand that point. Let's say Allison Engine is defrauding Bath, uh, but Bath makes ships for a lot of people, boats, whatever they make. Allison Engine is defrauding them, saying these engines, you know, work this way, and in fact they don't. It doesn't know that Bath is going to use some of them in a government ship as opposed to a private ship. So you'd say in that context, since there's no intent to defraud the government, there's no liability? Well, we would say certainly in the context where Allison knows that the, sh- the engines are to be used for private work, that the False Claims Act would it not. It just sells them engines. It doesn't know what Bath is going to do with them. Uh, they're going to put some in private boats and some in the government boats. I-, I think you could still have an FCA claim if, in fact, the work was being done for the government contract. But whatever the correct answer to that question in the circumstance where the subcontractor really doesn't know what the ultimate project is for, that's not the case here. The subcontractor. I, I, I have another question. Suppose the subcontractor, the fraud consists of inflating uh, the hours spent in a, in a cost-plus contract. So the, uh, the subcontractor submits and, and, and receives payment for $10,000 more than the subcontractor deserved, all right? But that all comes out of the hide of the contractor. The contractor gets the same amount of money from the federal government, and the, the fraud only, only harms the, uh, the contractor. Our view is that that would not be covered. That would not. That would not be covered. It would. Why? Because the statute, if, if you look at page two of the blue brief, uh, that reproduces the relevant provisions of the statute. And the one that we're principally, re- the, the two that we're relying on here are subsection two, which says, knowingly makes, uses, or causes to be made or used a false record or statement to get a false or fraudulent claim paid or approved by the government. And we would say that the reference to false or fraudulent claim paid or approved by the government should be taken as limited to a claim that is false as to the government. That is, it's false in a respect that the government cares, uh, cares about. Now, it I think about it because it, it in effect, gets less gets less than it paid for. Well, if, in, in if, the, if it were a cost-plus contract, the government would pay an extra 10000 and it would lose. That's right. If, if, they, uh, if, if they simply supplied defective parts, uh, the government would get less of a machine than it paid for. But in, the, in Justice Scalia's example, the government ultimately ends up with exactly what it bargained for, and the person who is out is the person who paid for too much labor, which is the general. Is that your — that's correct. And in, in, in that circumstance, I think the scheme could fairly be characterized as one to defraud the prime contractor, because the prime contractor would bear the loss associated with the scheme, and we would agree that that's not covered. Here — What you are saying is covered, I take it. And this is — I want to know how this has worked out. What is covered is imagine government grant programs. And suppose there are vast numbers of grant programs now that go to all kinds of entities throughout the country, and a large portion of which are just grants. They're paid, and the government is not going to get a penny back. 
Now, there are instances of frauds in such situations of subs against the person who gets the grant. And in — I can't imagine a case, maybe imagine, but it would be imaginary, where the government couldn't say, but we got less than the grant was supposed to pay for. And you're saying all those are covered. Is that right? I mean, I think our test would be, is the effect of the fraud to cause the money provided by the federal government to be diverted to purposes to other get than less than it was supposed to get. I mean, certainly. And so this is what surprises me on your side. It's 20 years later. And if all those things are covered, given the vast extent of government grant programs in the United States, has your interpretation worked to bring within this statute and lots of quitam cases against municipal frauds of all kinds, things that they just never thought of at the time of the Civil War? You see what the question is? I mean, I think think it's basically worked. I I don't think it's worked perfectly, but I I don't think — Have there been a lot of such cases? I I think there are a lot of cases. I mean, Medicare and Medicaid fraud is is an example that we would deal with differently textually, but those are programs in which the federal government provides money. Persons other than federal officials decide whether the claims should be paid, but ultimately there's reimbursement by the federal government. Now, now our answer — And Mr. Olson said on the Medicare that the the providers — that the intermediaries does present the bill that they got. And our view is that those would be covered even if there is a presentment requirement, because subsection A1 of the statute refers to a person who knowingly causes a false claim to be presented to a federal official. So because there's the reimbursement mechanism, we think that would be covered. But a, a big part of our argument here is that the applicability of the FCA should not depend on these sorts of quirks of timing. That is, to take the school hypothetical that was discussed in the first part of the argument, you have provision of government money for — federal money for construction of a school, and the contractors who deal with the state agency defraud the the state agency, and they produce a shoddy product. Now, if the way that the funding program works is that the state agency pays first — and then presents a claim for reimbursement to the federal government, that would be covered even with a presentment requirement. Well, how far down the line? I mean, let's take that hypothetical. The government gives money to the state to build a school. The school has to be painted as part of that. So the school contractor, the prime contractor, takes some of the money from the federal government and pays the painter. The painter needs to buy paint. So the painter takes some of the federal money and pays the paint company. The paint company has to get the chemicals from somebody. So the paint company takes some of the money and pays the chemical company. And at that point, the chemical companies fraudulently added, you know, a dollar onto the, the cost of the chemicals. So that dollar goes all the way through. So the government ends up paying a dollar more because of the fraud five, six, seven times down the line. Can a uninterested person bring a key tom action against the chemical manufacturer because of that fraud? I mean, I think our answer would probably be yes. A court might read a de minimis require, uh, limitation into the statute, but part of our point would be that that — hundred dollars more a can. Well, okay. well the, the answer to that hypothetical — and the answer to that hypothetical really has nothing to do with whether the statute imposes a presentment requirement, because the hypothetical — It's not a presentment requirement. That's in A-1. It's that the claim be paid uh, — the false claim be paid by the government. And what you're saying is when the government pays the state — 
that pays the, con- the school, that pays the contractor, that pays the paint, that blah, 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 that that is payment by the government of a false claim because the chemical manufacturer, six or seven steps down the line, commits fraud. It could be an A2 question, but, but my point was that the same type of issue could arise even with a presentment requirement, because if the chemical manufacturer presents his own bill to the paint company who presents his bill to uh, the contractor who does the painting work, who presents his bill, et cetera, et cetera. Well, he has to know that. He has to know that his bill is going to be sent up the line to the government. Uh, knowingly makes, uses, or causes to be made or used a false record to get a false or fraudulent game. I, I guess I was okay. — well, I And think if he knows it, serve him right. But, but, uh, but this other guy thinks he's just honestly uh, uh, cheating the guy who's buying the chemicals. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Again, whatever — Whatever the answer, the, the, the point I was trying to make about the timing is, again, assume away these issues about how much might be de minimis. You have substantial fraud by the contractor directed at the state agency. If the state, if the way the funding program works is that the state agency then presents its own bill to the federal government, we're going to have a good A1 case regardless of whether presentment is required because we're going to say, the, the, the subcontractor, the person who did the work, caused the state agency to submit a false claim to the federal government, and we can recover on sure, that theory. Sure. But, but if the government provides the money up front, gives it to the state agency, and says, use it for the defined purposes, you'll still have presentment of a claim by the state agency, namely the request for funding. But there will be no way to say that that claim is — The difference is, is that government money today is in everything. So, so if it's in everything — then everything is going to become uh, subject to this False Claims Act. And, of course, I exaggerate by using the word everything, but only a little. But the point about, time, the point about timing is if the state's claim is submitted to the federal government at a time when the fraud has not yet occurred, the state's claim can't be de- denominated false, assuming that the state intends well, but that, could- I, I don't know that that accords with the definition of claim in C. Well, the definition of claim in C says it's a request or demand. If the government will reimburse. Will reimburse, but it also says if the United States government provides any portion of the money or property which is requested or demanded, or if the government will reimburse. And so — But I meant meant provide. It has provided it already. That's correct. And my, my point is the definition of claim indicates that Congress didn't want liability to turn on this quirk of timing, whether the the fraud occurs before the claim is submitted to so the federal government. So then in your own school hypothetical, there's liability. There's liability if the federal government reimburses a claim for expenses that have already been incurred. But under petitioner's theory, if the federal government pays the money up front, the state has submitted a claim, but it's not a false claim. And then if the contractor defrauds the school, the, the state by producing a, a shoddy school, the, the contractor can't be charged with having caused a false claim to be submitted. That doesn't shock me. I, I don't It doesn't shock me at all. I mean, if, if indeed the object of this is to prevent fraud upon the government, and if the government has not been deceived at all, uh, Get, get yourself a new statute. But our point is that this statute doesn't have to cover every ill in the world. That's correct. But fraud, fraud against the government can occur whether the, the whole point of the definition of C is that fraud against the government can occur if 
Federal money is diverted away from its intended purposes, is whether the deceit is practiced directly upon a Federal official or a contractor or a grantee. Before, before you finish, your time is almost out. The major objection is the one that Justice Breyer just voiced, uh, that your position is vastly overbroad, and every time there's government money, uh, there will be uh, — one of these key TAM people can come in. What are the limiting principles that you say attach to this statute? There are two principal limiting principles. The first is that the, contra- the, the bill has to be submitted to the contractor or grantee in his capacity as such. That is, there has to be a nexus between the provision of federal funds and the request that's made. So if a subcontractor defrauds Boeing on work that Boeing is doing for a private airline, there's no FCA violation. Even though Boeing literally is a government contractor, it's not being defrauded in its capacity as such. And the second is that the fraud has to be of a nature that, if successfully carried to completion, could be expected to injure the federal government. So in the the hypothetical of the cost-plus contract between the prime contractor and the sub, and the sub presents an inflated bill, if the loss falls on the prime contractor and is not passed along to the government, the claim would not lie under the in, FCA. Injuring the federal government uh, would, uh, would — it would suffice to injure the federal government that the schools uh, are shoddy and the roofs are leaking. That would be enough. That would be enough. And it Even w- though the federal government is not out of pocket anymore, but the program that it, that it was desirous of encouraging is, is simply not as, uh, as good as it would have been otherwise. That, that's, that's, that's correct. And, and, and you would still your, — your theory would still cover the case of the, of the agency uh, that gets 10 percent of its budget by, through a general grant from the United States uh, no matter what it spent its money on, uh, regardless of the fact that the United States has no connection with particular contracts, if, in fact, a fraudulent claim was presented to that agency, it would fall within the Qui Tam statute. Well, we, we would still be asking was the, whether the fraud was of a sort that the federal government cared about. That is, if the federal government made a grant with no strings attached, use it as you want. Right, no strings. Th- then there would be no FCA liability. Because, Why wouldn't there be? Because the fraud would not... It, that, in that hypothetical, you would have something akin to a fraudulent car repair bill passed along, g- given to me. I happen to be a Department of Justice employee, and I might use my federal salary to pay the fraudulent claim. But we wouldn't say that's an FCA violation. Yeah, but when your salary is paid, in effect, the, 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 the government's interest stops when it pays for your labor. In the, in the hypothetical in which the government funds 10 percent of, of a sub-agency's uh, 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 operating budget, uh, presumably it, its intent generalized goes to everything that agency does. Well, we would still ask whether the government has — the federal government has placed meaningful limitations on the way in which the money may be spent and whether the nature of the fraud is to prevent those limitations from being honored. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Stewart. Mr. Helmer. Mr. Chief Justice, and may it please his court. Electricity is the critical component in a modern warship that allows it to fight, to defend itself, and to carry out its mission. 
Because of that, the Navy imposed rigid requirements on all who work on its generator sits in manufacturing those generator sits. Those rigid requirements were passed down from the Navy to Bath. Bath was ordered by the Navy to pass those down in writing to each of its subcontractors who are going to work on these gen sets, and Bath did that. Each of the subcontractors in this case knew they were working on the DDG-51 project, which is the Arleigh Burke-class destroyers. They knew that military requirements were called out in their paperwork that had to be met, and they did not satisfy those military requirements, and yet submitted both claims for payment and, as uh, Justice Ginsburg has pointed out, certificates of compliance. Now, if you look at the Sixth Circuit's joint appendix at page 620, you're going to see at paragraph 6.1 in the contract between uh, Bath Ironworks and Allison, the subcontractor, that Allison was required when it delivered the gensets to the shipyard to give a certificate of conformance that all of these rigid requirements had been satisfied. And that certificate of conformance had to be given to the United States Navy. And third, until that certificate of conformance was given to the United States Navy, no money, no money was going to be paid to Whose certificate? Is it a contractor's certificate that everything that the subs have done, or is the certificate of conformance that Allison provided, that Softco provided? Yes, ma'am. There are two certificates of conformance. You're absolutely correct. What I'm speaking of is the certificate of conformance from the defendants in this case. They have to take and give that to the shipyard that says, we have met all the requirements, the Navy requirements, and we have to give that to the U.S. Navy. The U.S. Navy then takes that certificate and releases the genset. It's under lock and key. It releases the genset. I, I thought so it we did installed in the ship. I thought it was not established that, that anything from this defendant got to the Navy. Uh, you were told that earlier this morning, Your Honor. I don't believe that's correct. Well, where in the record uh, is there some indication that some some paper from with a fraudulent representation made it up to the Navy? Uh, if you look at the Joint Appendix, the Sixth Circuit Joint Appendix at page 620, it's Clause 6.1, talks about the certificates. The certificates are in the record, starting at uh, Joint Appendix, Sixth Circuit Joint Appendix well, 5. Well, I know what the certificates are. I mean, uh, you know, their their general content. But was there anything in the record that a certificate from Allison went to the Navy with Allison's signature on it? Yes, Your Honor. The the contract with Bath required the Navy to receive that for Allison to be paid. There was evidence in this case that Allison was, in fact, paid for delivering these gensets. That's circumstantial evidence that they did submit their certificates of conformity. What about the statement that Mr. Olson quoted during his argument when counsel for plaintiffs said to the jury, uh, you haven't seen anything that, that was submitted to the Navy, and you're not going to see anything that was submitted to the Navy. No, Your Honor, that, I made that statement, and that was not my statement. My uh, well, statement, what was your statement? My statement was, you are not going to see the invoices from Allison, the invoices, not the certificates of conformance, not the invoices uh, from Bath to the Navy. You're not going to see those. 
but the invoices from Allison to Bath were all admitted into the record in this case. Well, then there's less to this case than we had thought. My goodness, even even under the petitioner's theory, you you win. If indeed a fraudulent document was given to uh, to Bath and Bath passed that on, I think the petitioners would have conceded. Your Honor, that, that this there's a cause of action. What is all this fuss about then? This case is not an outlier on the ends of this statute. It is squarely in the middle of. I wish you had said that in your brief, uh, because we could have saved ourselves a lot of reading. Well. Uh, Your Honor, anything that I can do to, to help the court, I apologize if I didn't write the brief better than I, than I could have. Uh, but I, I do have another point that I, that I would like to make in addition to what, what's in the record in this case. If you go back and look at the 1863 version of the False Claims Act, which continues on in 1943, the, the statute talks about in the second clause — and the second clause is what is now known as A2. It talks about um, a false record or statement being made for the purpose of obtaining or aiding to obtain payment. It does not say, and it never said, that there has to actually be payment. There has to actually be payment. Now, the statute reads today to get or false or fraudulent claim paid or approved by the government. My point is, and the rainwater case, Justice Scalia, that, that I think you may have been referring to, says that. The government does not have to have a monetary loss for there to be a False Claims Act violation. However, for there to be a violation of A2, the false record or statement that's presented, um, the false record or statement that's made, has to be made with the purpose of reaching federal funds. That's what the statute originally said. When it, that language was taken out in 1982, we all uh, seem to agree that the 82 recodification did not change any of the meaning or purpose of the statute. So, so your argument, your understanding of the scope of the statute is exactly the same if the words by the government were replaced by with federal funds. You think those are, you think the statute is exactly the same if it said with federal funds instead of by the government? Yes, Your Honor, I think that's correct. I think that that, that So when the government, when the phrase by the government was added, was it in 86? Yes, Your Honor. There were a lot of statutes that said with federal funds, right? There were. So why did this, the Congress add the phrase by the government instead of with federal funds if it meant the same thing? The, the legislative history is dark on that subject, but I have two answers for you, Mr. Chief Justice. First, if you look at the 82 version of the statute, there were six liability provisions set out. A seventh was added in 86, A7. But of the first six that were added in, in 82 when they broke this long sentence down into parts, every one of those provisions, except for A2, dealt with either by the government or defrauding the government. A7, likewise, has such similar language. My first point to you is that I believe that when Congress amended this statute in 86, it wanted all provisions to be consistent with each other in that sense that we're talking about fraud on the government, not fraud against private parties, fraud on the government. The second response I would make to you, Mr. Chief Justice, is that we don't read by the government as meaning presented to the government or even paid by the government. We read by the government as um, indicating that this is a limitation 
on A2. Because without that language on A2, if you read the definition of claim, then any claim for private funds could be — could have been covered by A2. By adding the words by the government, the Congress has limited this to directing to federal funds. Right. So, uh, yeah, I guess I get back to it. You read by the government as if it said with federal funds. I do, Your Honor. Suppose you just said to Justice Scalia, if you have one minute, I rather miss that, that if your point was if you lose on that point you just made, and it isn't with federal funds, and it is that the government has to pay the claim, you still win. That was your point to Justice Scalia, I yes. guess. Well, what was that argument? Because you said it wasn't in the brief, and what is it? How do you still win? Well, I believe they, that was the first point that I was making to no. Justice Scalia. And my point there is that A2 covers making a false record or statement to get a false claim paid or approved by the government. Yeah. In this case, they were required, Allison was required by its contract with Bath and the Navy to submit a certificate of conformance to Bath and the Navy to release the genset for an installation into the destroyer. Without that certificate of conformance, and we spent five weeks in front of a jury talking about why they were false, why each of those were false. Without that certificate of conformance, the, the uh, genset could not have been released to be installed in the ship, mm -hmm. and Allison could not have been paid. That's what Section 6.1 of the contract provides. If the certificate of performance made its way to the Navy, if that was required by contract, why did you not introduce direct evidence of that in your case? We did put all these certificates of conformance that were given to Bath in the record in this case. And all of those, by the terms of Allison's contract with Bath, had to be shown to the U.S. Navy employee on site at the shipyard. And that contract was also admitted into evidence. But that well, was only not the contract. You didn't show that, in fact, that had happened, that the certificates of conformance actually were shown to a naval officer? Uh, no, ma'am, we did not have a, a witness to testify that this certificate was given to and, and uh, who's Ensign so-and-so. Yeah, whose okay. who's contract required this? It's a strange provision to be in the contract between Allison and Bath. It, you're correct, Your Honor. It was the contract between Bath and Allison that I'm speaking about now that flowed — that also flowed down the U.S. Navy's requirements that these gensets be, be built rigidly to the specifications and, and set that, out by the And Navy. that contract between Allison and Bath said that this certificate from Allison had to be presented to the Navy? Yes, Your Honor. Okay. It had, it had, had to be shown to the Navy. If you want to get paid, mm -hmm. you have to show it to the Navy. And then the Navy will, will release the genset. See, they build these ships around the gensets. They are so huge that you don't install them on a destroyer. You build the destroyer up around it. So before you can release those to the shipyard for construction, you had to have the certificates of conformance. In the contract between the Navy and Bath, was there a provision uh, that Allison's invoices would be shown to the Navy? In other words, was the parallel provision in the contract with the, with the general uh, the same as, as the uh, provision between the general and the sub. Justice Souter, it was different. There is a provision, uh, I believe Justice Ginsburg was referring to, you'll find it at page 415 of the Sixth Circuit's Joint Appendix. That provision required that when Allison made a certificate to get paid to the Navy, I'm sorry, 
strike that, when that made a certificate to the Navy to get paid, it had to have available for the U.S. Navy all of the underlying documentation, all the bills, the invoices, and certifications had to be available to show the Navy. Available, but not necessarily transmitted. Not necessarily stapled to the invoice and given to the Navy, but they had to be available. But the contract between, uh, between Bath and, and Allison says, you give those to us and we give them to the Navy. It, it was specific in saying they go to the, your, your invoices, your, your certificates go to the Navy. It was specific in saying your certificate of conformance goes to the Navy. Okay. It, it, it did not say in the provision that I've cited to the Court your invoice. I stand. And that was why I said, Justice Alito, to the trial court, mm-hmm. not to the jury, that the invoices are irrelevant. And, and I, I didn't make that up. That comes out of the yeah. Bornstein opinion. Yeah. I mean, that, and that, that Bath would have been in breach of its contract with Allison unless it passed these things on to the Navy? That's why I say it's a strange provision to be in the contract between Bath and Allison. The certificate was required, Your Honor, yes, that was, that was required. The invoices had to be available. Allison could sue Bath for not passing the certificate on to the, to the Navy? Well, I, I believe the way it reads, Allison's supposed to hand the certificate to the Navy employee at the shipyard. So if, if in fact, as you suggest, Allison submitted the certificate to the Navy person at the shipyard, then the question presented in this case is not, in fact, presented. Uh, because the question presented assumes that there has not been a submission to the Federal Government of the false, false claim. I think that's fair to say, Your Honor. Did, did you make this point in response to the petition for cert? Uh, we oppose the petition for cert on other grounds. I did not cite the Court to the Joint Appendix, uh, the Sixth Circuit Joint Appendix at page 620. Well, you know, usually we take a case to decide the question presented. And if this question is really not before us, you should have told us. Well, my, my understanding, uh, Justice Scalia, is that under your Rule 26.2, I'm permitted to bring to the Court's attention additional information that was in the Joint Appendix below. And that was what I was attempting to do in response to Justice Ginsburg's initial question that started the presentation today. There has been a, a statement in opposition to your position that the way you read A2 would render A1 uh, useless, that everything would fall within A2. Is there a distinction between what comes under A1 and A2 in your, in your view? Uh, yes, ma'am. That is pointed out in the solicitor's brief at pages 18 and 19, the, the silver brief, uh, the, the distinction between A1 and A2. Uh, A1 can be a claim that just says, pay me. There's nothing false on its face, but it's impliedly false because it, it's uh, not entitled to be paid because the requirements haven't been met. A2 would require a specific false statement in that record or uh, statement that's, that's, that's used. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Helmer. Thank you, Your Honor. Uh, Mr. Olson, four minutes. Thank you, Mr. Chief Justice. Let me address the, um, what seems to be a controversy as to what was submitted to the Navy. Um, in the first place, the invoices were not submitted to the Navy. We know that. Um, that's the provision that I quoted before. The, the, Plaintiffs in this case did not call a single Navy witness, 
they did not call the prime contractor as a witness. So we don't know what the Navy received or what the Navy did not receive. With respect to the so-called certification, that is addressed on pages 57A through 59A of the cert petition appendix. This is a district court decision, three pages of discussion. This was an argument that the relators came up with relatively late when they couldn't explain why they didn't have the invoices or what actually went to the Navy, and they argued that Bath submitted a false implied certification. Then the district court goes through the evidence on pages 57A to 59A and concludes at the top of 59A, there is no evidence of a requiring, of a required continuing certification with respect to quality, which is the issue tried in this case. I don't have time to go through all of that or all of the evidence, but that is backing and filling. Um, there, it, what, and the question presented is a correct question presented. As the, as the relators put it to the, to the district court, we don't have to do that. We're not going to show you to do that. Let me ask you this question. Supposing they had submitted the qualification the certificate but not a claim, would they have had a case under your view? If it was — if the qualification — if the — if I, if a, and what I'm really asking is, do they still need a claim? I, they, there has to be a, a — no. Under A2, Justice Stevens, you could submit a statement intending to get a false claim approved or paid by the government. Now, government can't approve anything if it's not actually submitted to it or not intended to be submitted to it. That's in the same section of, of, of the statute. Let me, let me turn to the — this is a penal statute, is a punitive statute, as you pointed out in the Vermont versus Stevens case. There is no meaningful limitation on what the government and the respondents want in this case. The government has now come up with this limitation, well, it must be really a government project. Well, that isn't in the statute. That's basically the same thing you unanimously rejected in the Tanner case. They, the government said in its brief, if the government is the ultimate source of the funds, that goes back to the example that the Chief Justice was making. There might be 15 different layers the way this government works. Money is fungible. It's impossible to trace. This statute is intended to address claims made or statements made in connection with claims made to, to uh, commit to defraud the government and defraud the government irrespective of the definition of claim, which could have been put in Section A but was not put in Section A, the liability section. The Congress knows how to put those words in statutes. They're in the major fraud statute. Um, the, the, the case that this Court distinguished in Dixon, in, in Tanner, the Dixon case, was money given, paid to, or on behalf of the government. There are, there's language uh, like that throughout the congressional statutes. We don't know in this case whether the government was defrauded or was intended to be defrauded because there's this big space between what went on between the subcontractors and the shipbuilders and what went on between the shipbuilders and the government. There could have been all kinds of dialogue. There could have been disclosures. There might be deviations from the specifications in any kind of government contract. But this statute has, has to have a limitation point. And if you look at it from 1863 up through the present, it's intended, just as the Tanner case said, and in Marcus versus Hess you said that the criminal false claim statutes have to be construed identically with the civil uh, false claims provisions if they contain identical language. 371 has the same language as the False Claims Act, and the Tanner case is dispositive.
Thank you, Mr. Olson. The case is submitted.